Come and give me all that smoke, Donny, me and Mo, like I'm so rock and roll. Come and give me... Oh, hey, the podcast is back, I think for good this time. Uh, so welcome to the Ultra Working Podcast. Today we're going to build up our vocabulary. I think this is an underrated thing to do. I'm always happy to do this with people. You know, a lot of times we, we see a phenomenon out in the world. We learn about something or we get this vague sense, hey, there's this thing here. We don't have a name for it and we don't really fully understand it as much as we could. And uh, today we're going to do that. We're going to look at one that you have heard about um, and, and, and seen and talked about before, but probably didn't have words for. We're going to talk about the J-curve. It's a doozy. It's a good one. So what's a J-curve? Uh, J-curve, very simply, is something that gets worse before it gets better. So in statistics and economics and things like that, um, a lot of times there's, there's graphs, and the graphs oftentimes look like letters, so I'll call it J-curve, S-curve, kind of looks like the letter. A J-curve, you can imagine a graph, right, where you start at some score, 40 out of 100. And if you try to improve the thing, it gets worse. It goes down to 35, 30, 25, 20, right, before it gets better, right, and then eventually surpasses 40. Really important concept, you're gonna wait to talk about it at the end of it. I first came across the J-curve, the concept of the J-curve, um, by a guy named Ian Bremer. I don't know much about him, but he seems like a smart guy, a smart analyst. He wrote a book called The J-Curve, and I, I think I saw an article or an excerpt about it some years back. His idea was that in like security, like domestic security, I guess, um, of countries, that the more open a country is, a maximally open country, Sweden, um, is really secure. Nobody's going to, you know have their paramilitary squad roll up to the radio station and be like, I'm, I'm the dictator now. Uh, the, other, the other Swedish people would, would laugh at them. And, uh, you know, so, you know, Swedish uh, government's not going to get overthrown and, and conquered. Um, everybody would be like, what, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Um, it's like a pretty open society. You can kind of do whatever you want. You can get together. If you're up to really, really up to trouble, they'll, they'll stop you. But you know, you can kind of just do whatever you want. And, you know, if you want to insult the president or prime minister or whatever of Sweden, like, they'll be like, okay, like, whatever. They don't care. Um, and that's and that's very stable. Um, Bremer's observation is that hard-line police states are also very stable. Where they'll crack down on anything. You're looking at the president the wrong way, the prime minister, the dictator for life. You're looking at them the wrong way. <laughs> you know, you're off to the gulag, right? Like a North Korea. North Korea's still there doesn't seem like a great place to live but it's still there and his idea is really interesting that as you open up a society and let people do more of what you want you're more likely to have riots revolutions overthrows a rival group going to the radio tower and being like hey we're the new bosses of the thing and we're taking the old bosses uh, into the basement and putting around in them um you know so whereas that couldn't happen in sweden that's already on the the, the right side of the j curve when you go from 40 out of 100 security maybe is enough to keep a country together, right? And you're like, okay, now everybody can do what they want. The first thing they might do is overthrow the government, right? So that's a tricky that's a tricky puzzle. And, you know, you saw that with the Soviet Union, right? You saw that the Soviet Union, um, the reforms, the Glasnost and Perestroika reforms were the, the most opening and liberalizing of the Soviet Union. Um, and, and then also the how they, um, you know, how the Soviet body worked with the, the constituent federations, the, the, the countries, the sub, subunit countries that made it up, um, they liberalized all of that and then they got, they got overthrown, right? Um, 
So like at their most, okay, hey, we're opening, bam, over, right? So things got worse and they weren't able to get through to the other side um, and, and, and stabilize. They, they had to switch over to a, to a new form of, of government, right? So that's kind of interesting. And it's like, what a pickle, right? Like you got your thing that you're doing. And if you want the better thing, probably nicer to be in, you know, you could debate this, but probably nicer to live in Sweden than the Soviet Union. You know, you're going to go through a murky, very dangerous territory. Things get worse before they get better. Security gets worse. Um, if you're going to police state and you start to liberalize it, you go through danger. And then if you successfully liberalize it and everybody just does whatever, you know, enjoys enjoys Ikea furniture, goes shopping, then you're okay on the other side. A lot of things in life are like this. So J-curve, roughly speaking, you could chart it, is something that gets worse before it gets better. Maybe controversially, but I don't think so. Um, and I think other people have said this for a long time. I think a lot of times um, some types of education um, and training, and I don't mean just formal academia, but I think sometimes learning about a subject a little bit um, is it gets worse before it gets better thing. My, my friend Taylor Pearson has a, a wonderful newsletter called The Interesting Times uh, that he puts out. And he's always just finding the most interesting stuff from finance and economics and statistics and things like that. And one that he, read, uh, that he linked to recently was called uh, the midwit trap and uh, it's i don't know it's probably offensive mildly but it's i don't know it seems to be in good cheer uh there's like a, a graph of the bell curve and it shows that you know people that are not very smart in this graph right according to the graph right are just like hey there's not enough houses housing prices are going up build more housing and then super genius four standard deviations out people wearing like a monk's hood like they're super smart say build more housing so like the naive answer to what to do if there's not enough housing is to build more housing the sophisticated answer is to build more housing and then there's like funny in the middle of it no high rents are actually caused by foreigners and speculators holding units vacant and airbnbs and greedy landlords and actually there's this thing and we need to tax vacant units the problem will go away but actually doesn't even exist in the first place and people could easily afford rent if they stopped eating so much avocado toast Right. So, you know, a lot of times there's like a pretty common sense cause and effect relationship between things. When more people want to live in a city than there's housing, the prices on housing go up and it's harder to live there. And if you build more housing, then you know, prices go back down. But once you start learning about it, I think you go through like a J curve. Right. I think you go through a J curve. You realize there's all these other causal factors. Yeah. The amount of speculation. Um, in a market and the amount that, that real estate is being used as a inflation hedge or for a tax benefit um, or as a, a stable place to, to put your money overseas. You know, if you are somewhere less stable than Vancouver, Canada, you buy up a bunch of stuff in Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, it has an effect, right? Um, for sure it does. So you learn about all these factors and maybe you kind of lost the plot a little bit, right? So if 10,000 new people move into a city and they build 10,000 new housing units, prices should stay more or less the same, right? Um, you don't, then the prices go up. It's kind of how it works, right? And then, yeah, speculation, all that stuff affects it, but it tends to be a small percentage. Um, when you look at the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, you know, somebody knows nothing about a topic. Dunning-Kruger were the, the famous, the people that don't really know much about a thing think they know more than they do, and the people that know a lot think they know less than they do, right? As you start learning about a new field, you're like, oh, okay, cool. I'm starting to get this. I'm pretty smart. And then you're at your most overconfident, probably. It's funny, right? Because when you're five to 30 hours into studying a new field, 
for mental models, you, you've probably gotten some of the lowest hanging, most powerful stuff right away. Some of the introductory fundamental ways of thinking from a field you've gotten. So that's really good. It's probably made you better at everything else in your life. But this is probably like peak overconfidence in a new field. So, you know, like if you were trying to study something like, I don't know, traffic grids in a city, right? What do I know about traffic grids? Like I think you probably need some roads. You probably need more roads than cars. Sometimes the day are busier than others. Um, that's really important. You want to design stuff so people don't need to be on the roads in the busy time. Something like that. I don't really know anything about traffic grids. I'm going to guess that's probably pretty close to correct, you know, and there's like little things you do around the edges. Once you start studying the field, you probably pick up all sorts of more interesting patterns and, you know, systems effects and feedback loops and things like that. And you get smarter. I'm sure you'd learn a lot if you got into traffic traffic study. It's like it's a thing and it's actually, it actually looks very interesting. Maybe I'll go do a learning cycle on that at some point. But I think you're also probably at peak overconfidence and you probably have a bunch of complex ideas that were generated in your first 20, 30, 40 hours in the field. Um, of study, and probably a lot of those don't work, right? And they're probably very sophisticated and complex and, and wrong. Um, and then if you keep studying the field and you put another 200, 500, 1,000 hours in, then at some point you're like, okay, I, I, now I understand the trade-offs and I can put everything in a proper context. So I think learning a new field often follows a J-curve where when you don't get, when you're not in the field at all, me with the traffic grids. I don't really know much about it except that like sometimes the day the roads are busier than others and the amount of people on the roads at those times is probably like the chief determinant of the thing, right? And like, so you want to make it so that people aren't on the roads at that time where there's enough roads or both is my guess, right? Probably somebody starts learning about it. They know all kinds of complica complicated, complex patterns. They probably have some solutions that won't work at that point. And then all the way out the other side, maybe there's more sophisticated things about really thinking deeply about urban planning and light rail and stuff like that. So, you know, sometimes when you learn about a field, you actually get dumber because of overconfidence before you come out the other side and are smarter than you were in the beginning. Um, so the quality of your ideas on how to improve a field might actually get worse early on in a field, J-curve. In management, we've been, we've been working on uh, management systems at Ultrawork and professionalizing. As a side note, you know, there, there really needs to be like a, another term, I don't have one today, for like what's happening when you're like figuring out how to bring something new to people and how to really serve and do a good job and what do people need and then turning that into, okay, how do we like do that like extremely reliably and perfect it? Scaling is the word that's used in, in business, but it's, uh, it's a... Uh, it's treated as kind of like a continuous process and it's really a very different mode of thinking. So we've been looking at scaling and trying to get better at scaling and you know we borrow from different disciplines. We like to study the world. We're very interested in the world. I perhaps erroneously as a CEO um, spent my first 30 hours reading about management systems, my first 50 hours and I'm like let's do all the best practices and I had some dumb ideas. But I think they're good ideas. You just have to get to the other side of the J-curve. So a standard uh, classical um, place you don't want to work at management is like you get told exactly what to do. And then somebody stands there and like watches you doing it or like walks by every now and then like to do the thing. And they like yell at you if you don't do it. Telling people what to do. Now, they found that the best organizations don't do that. Don't need to get into that, but you know, more, more autonomy and such. And um, actually some of the, the first people to realize this actually of all, of all places was, was in the, the military. Um, the Germans 
uh, believe it or not, as much as there's a, a, often an interpretation of, uh, you know, Germans as like very rigid rule following and whatnot. Actually, back in the 1800s, the Germans came up with the term Auftragstaktik, um, mission, mission style command. Um, where instead of writing precise orders, you will go up to that hill and you'll put an artillery piece on the top of the hill and you'll have the artillery piece face 45 degrees and uh, you'll fire at any enemy units that appear um, in your field of vision. Um, instead of giving orders like that, they'll just say, hey, convoy is coming through. Do whatever you need to secure the area so the convoy gets through safely. You probably want, you know, and the commander would be like, I'd probably take that hill and put the artillery piece on there, but if that's not the right way to do it, then, you know, as you like. Um, and, you know, like post-Napoleon, the Germans got really beaten up by Napoleon pretty bad. And, and so a bunch of um, really luminous German thinkers came after that. Clausewitz is the most famous. Um, they were just like, hey, what is that? Well, Napoleon kind of, instead of giving these rigid orders, was a little more fluid. And the Germans kind of formalized that in the Auftrag's tactic. Instead of just telling you what to do, it's like, hey, here's the outcome. Make it happen, right? Like, you know, here's the resources we have. Let me know what you need. Let me know if there's any problems. And sounds good, right? Uh, yeah, so we did that. But... But what I realized is you can't just do that. You need like supporting structures around it and you need a culture around that. Because a lot of times this is, sounds so simple, it sounds so obvious. A lot of times somebody would come back to me and said, Sebastian, I don't know what I should do here. What's the goal with this thing? And I'm like, well, I don't know either. Would you like me to make the arbitrary judgment call on it? You know, you're closer to it than I am. You know what the outcome is. Like there's probably like three options. Just like, I don't know, do a pros and cons thing and pick the best one, right? And, and so people kept coming to me and saying like, hey, what should I do with the thing? And I'm like, look, you, you make your own call here. We got the mission, just do, do, do that, right? And I kind of like went out of my way to in, to be like that and to promote that. And I think it produced a lot of success for us, but I think if you want to have Auftrag's tactic, you want to have really autonomous, people can do within reason whatever they like, um, I think that's like a J-curve, I think there's a reason that, you know, McDonald's, which routinizes everything and tells you exactly what to do, um, is successful and that's adaptive and that shows up a lot in the world. And the Auftragstaktik, the, hey, here's some outcomes autonomously, just get after it and enjoy yourself and like, let me know what you need, um, is rare. Um, and so we were doing a, a internal, we do internal trainings every single week at Ultra Working, and we'll go deeper on this one um, at some point, but we were looking at how militaries do C3 systems, command control communications. And Chris had this, uh, Chris Natter, who's on the team, had this uh, wonderful observation. He said, you know, Sebastian, Auftrag's tactic. I'm like, yeah, sounds great. He's like, oh, no, 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 it is great. It's the best way to do things in, 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 in business and in the military if you can. But do you know how much time the military spends, the militaries that are into it spend learning and teaching it? I'm like, how much? They're like hundreds of hours hundreds of hours for a second lieutenant officer cadet or a second lieutenant. I'm like, hundreds of hours. The ability to communicate and set a scope of mission and, and, and work and orders and how to feedback and check in in an autonomous way. Hundreds of hours of training and how to do that. Not 20, 30 hours of like you read a book or two and you thought it was, it was cool. You know, you think Helmuth von Molkta is pretty smart guy. Let's do what they did. The business equivalent. Not so much hundreds of hours. So if that's the case, then you might see a J curve from standard do what you're told management that as you want to get more autonomy and more decentralized and let people make their own calls and it's like, hey, as long as we're on the same page about the mission and the standards, go for it, things might get worse. 
or if you want to try to avoid that, you'll have to go through a deep, deep, deep training cycle. At least your judgment as a manager and executive might get worse when you're moving from the traditional model of, you know, control, control to, you know, more, hey, cool, light touch. Here's a mission, get after it, right? So there might be a J curve in management systems and then planning systems where the, here's the thing, do it. I'm going to watch to see that it gets done. Um, you know, gets like 40 out of 100. On the other side is, you know, up to 100 out of 100 if you really, really nail it and you, you know, you have a wonderful um, independent action type of thing they had at Bell Labs. Um, but you don't get that for free. Um, and if you are in a traditional, we never were, but we're installing some of the pieces that we maybe skipped over. Um, if you were in a traditional kind of do what you're told structure, we're giving people more autonomy, more freedom, similar to like international security, similar to learning about a complex domain that before you probably had a close to common sense correct answer and then you learn the first 20, 30 hours you have the wrong idea, maybe things get worse. Last thing I want to address is switching technique. One of the things that just fascinates me endlessly is when an athlete who's very, very successful rebuilds their technique from scratch. And this is more subtle, but also can apply in intellectual domains, right? So I think probably the most famous, famous example from the last couple of decades was Tiger Woods was, I believe, the youngest person ever win. I don't follow golf, so pardon me, what, whatever the big golf thing was. One of the big golf things. He was the first youngest person to win in. He did a, did a great job and came out came out like a lion, just 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 winning a lot. And um, then he fell off a little bit and came out later that one of the things that happened when he was falling off was he rebuilt his golf swing. So he was very naturally gifted, very strong, very perceptive, and so on. But he didn't have perfect habits. He didn't do things perfectly, right? So when he went to switch swings for a year or two, he didn't didn't really win very much um, after being kind of like a, just coming out like a bat out of hell onto the golf course in the beginning. He rebuilt his swing. He, he rebuilt his swing technique with his coach and the coach, um, you know, it got worse before it got better. It was like a J curve, right? And, and so later um, his swing coach butch Harmon, put it like this quote i agreed with tiger about the flaws when tiger analyzes his own swing but i wanted to do it a piece at a time he wanted to do it all at once i told him it was going to be hard to play through it j curve editor's note um and that he might want to do what faldo did with something or other and take a year off he said no and in 1998 he struggled and won only once he had a tendency to overdo changes i had to be very careful what i told him so if you're a naturally gifted athlete you know, it's unlikely you had the most biomechanically perfect swing and follow through and hip position and, and whatever in golf, right? And, but you got to whatever success you did as a natural athlete and a hard worker and whatever. And then you're like, let me get perfect mechanics. Well, I mean, the first thing that's gonna happen, this is why it's obvious that it's a, a, a J curve, is you're gonna go from instinctual, intuitive, don't need to think about it, to now needing to think about my swing. And the fluidity and the grace and the timing are going to get all messed up. And you're going to have competing old way of doing things that your body is familiar with and used to doing and the new way that you're trying to install. And you'll be a mess for a while. If you are correct in your assessment that there are better biomechanics available for you, then you come out stronger on the other side. I think a lot of people aren't willing to go down those J curves. I did in writing. I used to be an intuition writer or an inspiration writer, I sometimes call it. 
where I would write when I felt like writing, when I got inspired. If I didn't have anything to say, I didn't really know what I would do. I would just try to get inspired. Maybe go to a really cool cafe with a nice ambiance or something. And if, not, if words didn't come, I had writer's block. I switched to being what I call a mechanics writer, where I follow a disciplined process when I write, and I don't get to write as much as I used to. I used to really enjoy it. But I followed a disciplined process on writing of brainstorming and ideating. And when I do that, I only do that outline and only outline when I'm outlining. Writing and only write and don't edit when I'm writing and edit separately. That's from Bob Posen, who's a professor at Harvard. and. Um, yeah, he wrote some of the best best things on being a mechanical writer. Um, and, I, and I retrained on it. And it took me weeks and plenty of hours where I was worse. And I feel like the quality was worse and I was slower. But later, the quality was better and it was faster. So it's a J-curve. Switching from being an inspiration writer to a mechanics writer meant my writing got worse in quality and took longer. And I think a lot of people give up, right? So if you're at 55 out of 100 quality, and you're like, here's a better way of doing things. And you start implementing it. Now you're at like 50. And then you keep implementing more. And you're like 45. And you're going down. You might be down at like 15 out of 100 before things start to improve. But then they only sometimes improve to like 20 out of 100. It's like, it's still not good. It's starting to work. And it's still not good. But then you march your way up the other side of the J curve. And you can hit higher heights than you've ever seen before. Right? So... I think it's worth thinking about this. My, my primary objective, which I think we've now achieved, is, that, is there's language that you can adopt into your vocabulary, this phrase, J-curve. J-curve is a way to graph and model the common phrase, things get worse before they get better. Things get worse before they get better, right? And there's plenty of things in life that behave like that, especially in complex systems where you need like six or seven things to switch over at the same time. The human body with its biomechanics as an athlete is a, is a system. You can't just change your wrist position. You also need to change your shoulder position, right? And your hips need to follow along and the timing needs to be synchronized between all of them, right? You know, if you had uh, police state institutions and you're trying to replace them with, with liberal institutions, you know, it's, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Um, and likewise, you know, management systems and, and, and control and management systems and, and then your own personal technique in the fields that you're in. I mean, even learning about things, it very well might be the case that on certain things, as you start to study them, your quality of judgment and knowledge actually gets a little worse for a while. Maybe that's controversial, but I think sometimes that's true. So you got a way to talk about this now. It's a J-curve. And somebody says, hey, we're going to start doing this thing. It's going to suck, but then it's going to be great. You're like, oh, is that like a J-curve? Bam. You can talk about it now fluidly. Even more interesting than that is I think people don't investigate techniques that have a J-curve-like shape on them. Maybe they get in and they mess around with it for a day or two. They mess around with it a day or two and things aren't as good. And, and so they're just like, well, that doesn't work. So the feedback loops on J-curves are, are kind of nasty. It's like by doing the right thing and rebuilding the way you do things, things are getting worse before they get better. And this is where you need to talk with knowledgeable people, have a knowledge about the domain, know what you're working towards. But... I think those can be very profitable to investigate. If you've got injured weightlifting in the past, you might want to build your, rebuild your weightlifting technique, and it might look very different. You might have a different set of activities. Same with management, same with skill building, same with physical activities, golf, um, and, and maybe mental activities like writing and, and planning. So you now have new vocabulary, J-curve, when everyone's like, this is going to suck, but then it's going to be great. It's like, oh, it's like a J-curve. Um, pretty cool and useful to orient and talk about with people. And 
maybe do a little investigation. Is there any areas you could improve in where it's going to get a little worse, maybe a lot worse, before it gets way better on the other side and then pushing through the J-curve. So we're back in business over here. Get it, get it, get it. So thank you for listening. It's a pleasure as always. Ultra Rigging Podcast, we are back.